On Being with Krista Tippett is supported in part by the Fetzer Institute, helping build the spiritual foundation for a loving world. Fetzer's Sharing Spiritual Heritage Report asks, How will we reimagine our spiritual infrastructure for today's time? Learn more at Fetzer.org. What a time to be alive, Adrian Marie Brown has written. Right now we are in a fast river together. Every day there are changes that seemed unimaginable until they occurred. Adrian Marie Brown and others use many words and phrases to describe what she does, who she is. A student of complexity, a student of change and of how groups change together, a scholar of belonging, a scholar of magic. She grew up loving science fiction and thought we'd be driving flying cars by now, and yet has found in speculative fiction the transformative force of vision and imagination that might in fact save us. Our younger listeners have asked to hear Adrienne Marie Brown's voice on On Being, and here she is as On Being enters its own time of evolution. This conversation shines a light on an emerging ecosystem in our world over against the drumbeat of what is fractured and breaking. Working with the complex fullness of reality and cultivating old and new ways of seeing to move towards a transformative wholeness of living. I'm Krista Tippett, and this is On Being. Adrian Marie Brown is the author of several books which are shaping new generations. Among them, Emergent Strategy, Pleasure Activism, Octavia's Brood, and We Will Not Cancel Us. She is the writer-in-residence at the Emergent Strategy Ideation Institute. She lived for many years in Detroit and now lives in Durham, North Carolina, where she was as we spoke. Hi there. Hi, how are you? I'm good. It's Krista. I'm so happy to meet you. So honored it's to so have you here. It's so good to meet you, Krista. Your <laughs> voice has been in my ear. Oh, that means a lot. Yes. Um, I would love to ask you this. I'm so curious, actually, to ask you this question that I've asked so many people. Mm-hmm. Um, how you would start to speak about what the spiritual background of your childhood was. However you would describe that um, looking back mm-hmm. now. Mm. Yes. I love my spiritual childhood, actually. (laughs) So I think the big picture way to think about it maybe is like I was born into a household that was at the transition point, like on the horizon between like an evangelical Christianity that was very obligatory and very kind of shame and judgment, (laughs) you know, God is going to punish you and that kind of religiosity of, of spiritual practice. But we were at the horizon to a more direct and kind of action-based, practice-based spirituality. Mm -hmm. And my parents were an interracial marriage in the 70s, mid-70s. Yeah. And so they kind of... Mother was white and your father was black. Yes, mother white, father black. And met in South Carolina, fell in love Mm -hmm. at Clemson University. Um, But they were making a whole world unto themselves. And so we went to church. My dad was in the military and we were often in non-denominational churches on the base, but we were always really encouraged to think and to ask questions. We were taken out into nature. You know, we, like my parents love to take us to parks and mm. take us to the mountains and, to, you know, show us like, look at the world. Like that's the, like, if I was going to say, what are the most persistent spiritual practices? It was probably gratitude and compassion. We were mm. always like, wow, we get to be here. Wow. Like Mm. 
just be amazed by this world and travel and be curious and see it all. And then, you know, when people would mistreat us um, or when we would encounter, you know, intense racism and other things, there was so much, there was a compassion, you know, of just like, oh, that's on them, (laughs) you know, like that's, they're struggling, you know, they're struggling, but we're safe. We love each other. We're good, you know? And um, Octavia Butler, the science fiction writer, is such an influence um, Mm -hmm. on you. You know, some people will have read her, some won't. But so just knowing that, you know, talk a little bit about what she worked in you. Yeah. So, you know, she was a science fiction writer. And at the time that she was writing, you know, she would always be like, I'm kind of the only one, (laughs) you know, the first of what she was, a black woman writing science fiction. And when I read her work, I think what opened up in me was all this possibility. So until reading that, I had been reading like Philip K. Dick and all these other sci-fi. I loved it. You know, Mm -hmm. I love Star Trek. I love Star Wars. But then Octavia, I open up her books and the protagonist is a black girl um, and both the blackness and the the youth matter here. Mm-hmm. She was writing people who were 15 years old and who already had a sense of destiny and a sense of the world needs to change and I'm going to be a part of that. And she was very solution oriented in her writing. She was very like practical in her writing. She wrote so many stories where the main message was like, change is coming. Right. You can be prepared for it and you can, you don't have to be a victim of it. You can actually shape it. So she opened all of that up for me and I kept returning to the work over and over again. She also really opened up that you can look to nature as a teacher. Um, right. Right. That like the natural world is up to a lot of things and we are natural. And so anything that's happening out there can happen in us. <laughs> and we can coexist and we can be symbiotic and we can collaborate. Um, and her disappointment in humanity also was really comforting to me. <laughs> you know, she was just like, wow, like we have this amazing, awesome earth and we are just fumbling the bag because we're so obsessed with using our intelligence to enact hierarchies over each other. Right. And I was like, she gets me. <laughs> she, she sees what I see. <laughs> you know? There's this passage from the parable of the sower Mm. The Book of the Living, verse 19. Um, I've seen you kind of work with the words, with the language and the ideas that are at the core of your work, also kind of kind of emergent from this passage, right? And so all successful life is, and I just love that framing, right? All successful life. Mm-hmm. It's what could we be moving towards, right? Yes. How does successful life function? Is adaptable, opportunistic, tenacious, interconnected, fecund, understand this, use it, shape God. Yes. It feels to me like, and you sometimes speak about, what is it you say, that visionary fiction, right, is, is, mm-hmm. is a core principle in your work. And it seems to me that, I mean, what you're getting at there is a core value of imagination and understanding the power of imagination in making the world and remaking the world. Yeah. Well, you know, I want to shout out my friend Walida Imarisha, who named Visionary Fiction. Mm. And 
I was obsessing over Octavia and she was also, (laughs) and we found each other and we, we wrote, um, pulled together this anthology called Octavia's Brood. And in that process, I started the work of emergent strategy, you know, started to listen to what is up with the natural world? What can it teach us about how to be humans and how to be humans in a better relationship with each other? And what I realized is it is the work of radical imagination to do so, but also that we're living inside of imaginations that other people (laughs) told us were true and told us were like, this is how the world is. And I always uplift my friend, Terry Marshall. Um, He was the first person to say this to me that we're in an imagination battle, which just blew my mind. And I, I think about it often that we live in this abundant world and we've been told it's scarce Right. And then we're given all these stories of scarcity. So, so much of the work for me of radical imagination is like, what does it look like to imagine beyond the constructs? What does it look like to imagine a future where we all get to be there, um, not causing harm to each other and experiencing abundance? You've even spoken about that organizing um, can be treated like time travel. Yes, Say some more about that. What does that mean? You know, it's like we are reaching into the future. Mm -hmm. We are trying to project what we can imagine into the future. And organizing is a way of saying, like, we're going to put our hands directly on the future. But it's also time traveling backwards, you know. So much of, of organizing is looking back at what did our ancestors try? What did they learn? What were they up to? What was Harriet Tubman doing? You know, I'm obsessed with Harriet Tubman. I'm (laughs) obsessed with like, what was it like to walk in her shoes and to face her fears, you know? So I always want to reach back and be like, okay, well, now what is the Harriet Tubman activity to do in this time? And what does Harriet Tubman up to in 2063? Yeah. Because there's always some place that needs um, justice and liberation. You know, a minute ago, you were talking to me about your childhood, and you said your parents um, having an interracial marriage in the seventies. They were they were making a world that didn't exist. Yes, and that's what visionary fiction does. That's what fiction does, and and I hear you saying that's what organizing does. Yeah, and you know, there's a way, just like I think my parents ran into. It's like you have to bring that imagination into relationship with reality. Yeah, and. And that can be devastating, you know, being with what is and then figuring out how do we make more possible. Yeah. You know, I feel like your work and your writing, your activism and really the conversation, the wider ecosystem of conversation and action and change and imagination that you're part of is um, it's there's a there's a vocabulary. There's really there's really a lexicon that's being unfolded and it's, Mm. you know, words and ideas and practices. And, and so I think, you know, one of the things I want to do in this short time we have is to kind of just, just kind of lay some of that out. And I, so obviously Mm. emergent strategy is at the core of it. Talk about what it means to put those words together, emergence Mm -hmm. and strategy. I I love talking about this. (laughs) I'm like, maybe I'll never tire of it, but I'll also try to be brief. So the word emergence, the definition I work with comes from Nick Obolinsky, and it's emergence is the way 
complex systems and patterns arise out of relatively simple interactions. So birds flapping their wings, birds in a flock together is a relatively simple interaction. Um, but birds all doing that together and avoiding predation can become the most complex, gorgeous patterns of murmurations, migration, survival, right? Mm. So we're all emergent beings. Humans are an emergent species amongst emergent species. And the strategy part comes in, you know, I think what we mean by strategic is able to adapt to changing conditions while still moving towards our, our vision of freedom and the future and being in that practice. So that's what emergent strategy is. It's like, how do we get in a right relationship with change that allows us to harness and shape things um, towards community, towards liberation, towards justice? Yeah, I was looking on the website of the Emergent Strategy Ideation Institute and that notion of... Um, you know, acknowledging the real power of change and mm-hmm. and embracing, finding practices and responses, visions and plans that embrace complexity, interdependence yeah. and transformation. And also noting that this strategy has been observed from the natural world yes. and is both ancient and constant. So, you know, even yeah. in this short conversation you and I have had, you, um, you're always locating yourself within Right within an ecosystem of teachers yes. and role yes. models, and uh, and language, and that I mean, so your teachers also um, are in the natural world. They are mushrooms Absolutely. and dandelions. Absolutely. <laughs> well, so talk to me about the strategic <laughs> intelligence of mushrooms. So mushrooms, I feel like they're our great detoxer. Okay. Yeah. They're the ones who understand that nothing needs to be wasted, that everything can be used in some way. We just have to understand what it is. And I often think about this when it comes to our abolition conversations and our Mm -hmm. justice conversations, that mushrooms are, are like, this is food if we can find a way to use it. This could be nourishment. And when something breaks down in our communities, it's actually a moment usually when something needs nourishing. Mm. Or when something is dead, when something mm. is done, it's complete, and it needs to be processed back into the whole. Can you think of just an example, just, just like a situation? Oh, yeah. yeah. Um, so in movement spaces, you know, I worked as a facilitator for 25 years. So one of the things I saw all the time is an organization would have kind of served its purpose or served mm. the initial purpose it came into existence for. And what would have been great and possible was to just sunset the organization, right? Yeah. Just be like, great, we did a good job. Let's call it. Let's learn what we need to learn and move on. And instead of doing that, the organization was like, no, no, we need to persist. So let's change our mission, right? We'll update our mission. And here's what the ph- philanthropy is willing to fund. And they get contorted. But we, we often forget that it's like, oh, now it's time to compost this and process it and see where else the resources need to flow. Oh, and I think what you're describing is true of all kinds of organizations, right? It's a a cultural... It's a cultural kind of bias and sensibility that we have that if something dies or ends... That that's bad. That it's failure. Exactly. Um, Exactly. This is coming to me as... uh, (laughs) This is feeling very close (laughs) to me right now because I don't know if, Mm. if you've heard that we're... We're kind of winding down the weekly radio show that, ah, is, which is how I'm being started, two uh-huh. decades, and wow, that's huge! It is huge, and 
and I think without having all the vocabulary and all the all the yes. words and the and the philosophy that you've just laid out, I I I know it's just time, right? And it's That's it's right. it's an ending and it's a beginning. It's vitality. It's right? vitality, vitality, and like what you're has speaking to is the has... life force, right? Mm-hmm. Everything dies, but that's kind of good, yeah. <laughs> you know. Yeah. Like it's it makes for a very rich world. Like all the richness, all that fecundity, all that beautiful miracle of life, mm-hmm. it happens because we live in cycles, not yeah. perpetuity. And as you say, right? compost something else, right? Other yes. seeds, other seeds yes. are then yes. have their moment, have their time. Exactly, uh-huh. exactly. And it's trying to hold on to stuff and not let it die that actually puts us in precarious positions, yeah. even for our species. This is actually one of our biggest issues right now is we're so scared of death. Yeah. And so we think about how do we make people live forever and how do we look young forever and do all this stuff instead of being like, Oh no, how do I get good at dying? You know, how do I get to where I'll be at peace when my time comes? Because there's other generations that need to survive off of the resources of this place, (laughs) you know, it's in the design. I'm Krista Tippett, and this is On Being, today with emergent strategist Adrian Marie Brown. Just drawing on what you were just saying, uh, I mean, emergence is change, right? Someplace you said emergence is our inheritance as a part of the universe. It is how we change. And emergence... um, doesn't wait for us to be ready for change, mm-hmm. and we're really in an accelerated <laughs> moment of that right now. Mm-hmm. But as you know, change is really hard for human beings, right? It's hard mm-hmm. for us at a creaturely level, and also we all individually handle it in different ways at different times. Yeah. And so I, you know, I wanted to talk about, I feel like this wisdom is so powerfully embedded in the way you think and the way you're working. And one of those for me is the way you use the word fractal. <laughs> <laughs> you said huh. that you first thought about fractals when you were, so just to, to kind of bring home again, <laughs> that this is all about what happens on the ground. Um, you were doing electoral organizing in 2004. Is that right? Yeah. So I was doing electoral organizing in 2004 and 2003, 2004, right? We're gearing up. It's post 9-11. It's like, we're going to war with Iraq and Afghanistan and we're like, we got to get Bush out of office, you know? So we're doing all this organizing and it clicked for me in a way that I couldn't, you know, it's one of those things you see it and you can't unsee it that I was like, Oh, we are trying to just change the top layer of this very layered cake, this very layered process, this system of governance. We think that if we just win the presidency, that then we'll be able to change the world. And it clicked for me that it's like, actually it's a fractal system and it's layer on top of layer on top of layer. And if none of us are practicing democracy anywhere, it's not gonna just suddenly work at the top layer. <laughs> and it, I got it. And then I, I realized, so something about smallness, I was able to gain respect for Cause I was like every single large system or structure or network or political protocol, all of it 
is made up of small things of humans either having or not having necessary conversations and humans being willing to stand up for what is right and stand up against what is wrong. It's all these small activities that we need to get great at if we want to actually have anything that would be a real democracy. Um, this language of fractal comes from um, mathematics, right, originally. Yeah. And, you know, the first thing that I was exposed to was actually fractals, uh, the the Fibonacci, like the, mm -hmm. the sequence is basically like mm -hmm. how something repeats at scale, no matter how small it gets and no matter how large it is. And it's these particular patterns in the universe. And I felt so naughty when I started using fractal, you know, <laughs> as someone who's like, I barely understand math. Yeah. But so far, my my friends who are in the math and science world have not like completely doused me <laughs> in shame. So I feel like I'm, I'm okay. But, you know, sometimes I'll use the language of fractals. Sometimes I'll just point to actual examples. So I'll be like, look at a head of broccoli, look at a fern, look at the Delta around New Orleans, and then like, look at how these veins and artery systems move through your system and your mm -hmm. heart and your lungs. Mm -hmm. um, look at the spiral shapes on your fingertips, and then look at the shape of galaxies. And in that way, we can begin to see like there are no isolated patterns. You know, the universe it has some favorites and they repeat and they repeat at every scale. Mm. And then people are like, oh, <laughs> you know, like I'm like, yes, like your body is a whole water system. There's all these different formations that are all how to how to move water. And we're one of them. And I find it very comforting you know, to, to find myself in one of those patterns. And that that imagery is so stunning, and it provides exactly the contrast to to this worldview that, yeah. that you and I were raised in, that came into the 21st century, that, right, yeah. that you could elect one person at the top. Yes. <laughs> and that would change everything. And that would change everything. That would change everything. It was exactly. never true, but it was no. perhaps it felt a little more true in a more homogeneous society. Yeah. And I also think it's like, again, in the imagination, if you are someone who would benefit from that power system, right, then it really behooves you to imagine the world is that way. Yeah, that works. <laughs> you know, yeah. it's like, but I'm just, you know, I from a very young age was like, but I'm just as smart as these white men in my classes. And, and yet the same opportunities are not available to me. Can someone help me understand that? Yeah. I, I need a logic because <laughs> it's not adding and, up. And there is no logic. And there's no logic yeah. to it, right? And often when there's no logic, then that's when you know you're in someone's dream. Mm. You know, this whole way of seeing, this whole way of imagining is emergent in our world right now. And there's struggle around it. There are different ways of seeing, but I think perhaps more definingly, the conditions aren't all there, right? That's right. So, you know, one of the things um, that you also talk about is how, like, there is going to be important conflict and contradiction yeah. that is part of the process of ending cycles of harm. Yeah. And so one of the things we also have to be working on, and this goes back to our human condition, yeah. Um, I mean, here's some ways you've talked about it. How, you know, how do we fight fair? How do we struggle in principled ways? That's how right. do we practice accountability beyond punishment with each other? 
And there's all kinds. There are all kinds of friction points, right? But that's one of that's them. That's right. Well, and, you know, one of my teachers around this is um, a writer and a thinker named Miriam Kaba. And she's an exquisite human being, exquisite thinker. And one of the things that she often reminds me of, because like, I think what would be so comforting to us is if we could be like, we're going to end the prison system and automatically move to a very well-organized, centralized system where like, you know, instead of everyone going to prison, like you just go straight to a mediator and it's all handled. Right. And she's like, it won't be like a huge overarching centralized system. Transformative justice will be a lot of us learning the skills to hold conflict within our communities, within our families, um, within our schools and institutions we're learning ourselves to hold it in different ways. But also I always love to point out that this is some of the most ancient technology also, right? Um, If we listen to indigenous communities around ways that they have resolved conflict over, you know, thousands and thousands and thousands of years, a lot of it is the same practices and they're still practicing them, right? So it's being in a circle, it's listening, it's, being able to let one person speak at a time, Mm. it's identifying what are the consequences, right? Not the punishments, but what are the reasonable consequences, the boundaries, you know, how how do we make this right? What does that actually look like? And relinquishing the idea that, you know, we'll all end up as best friends at the end or whatever, right? (laughs) Right, The kind of fairy tale Disney version of conflict mediation. Instead, being with what is the human condition, it says, it might be hard. You might never get back to that, but you can get to a just place. Hmm. You can get to a just place. You can get to a place where you're not walking around carrying the anger that that's not the primary experience you're having. You know, it's like, I was hurt, and now I've been able to move forward, and, and here's what moving forward looks like, and I was able to define some of that for myself. After a short break, more with Adrian Marie Brown. On Being with Krista Tippett is supported in part by the John Templeton Foundation, funding research and catalyzing conversations that inspire people with awe and wonder. Learn about the latest discoveries in the science of hope and optimism, forgiveness, and free will at templeton.org. I'm Krista Tippett, and this is On Being. Today I'm with Adrian Marie Brown, a philosopher, organizer, and social creative whose work and words are driving emergent vision and strategies in our world of change. In 2020, she published a small tract that unleashed a large conversation beneath our surface of polarized fracture. It's called We Will Not Cancel Us. I just want to read a beautiful... Some beautiful sentences you wrote, so so powerful, and I'm and I think this is in. We will not cancel us. Um, okay. We are brilliant at survival, but brutal at it. We tend to slip out of togetherness the way we slip out of the womb, bloody and messy, and surprised to be alone, and clever, able to learn with our whole bodies, the way of this world. And the context of that 
was talking about how your default position is wonder. And <laughs> you have to carry around a lot of disappointment and frustration <laughs> yes. and critique with humanity. And, and that you also, that that is especially true when you look at um, social justice movements um, where you expect so much, right, and desire so much. <laughs> yes. And you're being honest and you're actually saying that from a place of love, right? And of yeah, and yeah. of high brilliant expectations and mm. and so countercultural <laughs> mm-hmm, in this mm-hmm. context in which to call for accountability to express honest critique even to kind of acknowledge imperfection is leapt on as mm-hmm. failure. Yeah. So you really walked into a brave and hazardous space. <laughs> <laughs> That's right, Krista. <laughs> yeah. 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 You know, I, um, it's, I always think about how that I had been away on sabbatical um, and the pandemic was unfolding and I returned from sabbatical and there was like, everyone was canceling each other is what it felt like. Um, I had been away from social media for not even that long. And so I know this was happening before I stepped away, but I was normalized to it because I was in it every day. And then when I stepped away and came back, I was like, oh my goodness, (laughs) like this is all we're doing on the internet now. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, it just felt like, it just felt like so intense and it didn't feel it didn't feel like what we're supposed to be up to. You know, like I felt like, can we do it a different way? Can we do it with love? And can we be honest, at least honest, that there's not love in the way we're doing it now? Right. Because I think that was also what was hurting my heart was people being like, yeah, we just have to love each other. <laughs> and then we're doing the most awful, awful dismissals and disposals of each other. Mm-hmm. And because of my facilitation background, I was also catching some of those disposals. Like um, people would show up and just be like, hey, you probably saw this, but I just got canceled. <laughs> and I, almost yeah. always I was like, I didn't even see it. Like I can't even keep up with <laughs> right. you missed all of it. it. So yeah. I was like, I had no idea, but yeah. this person was devastated and, mm-hmm. and sometimes suicidal. Yeah. Like it was having an impact. And I, I want us to at least not pretend like it's not having an impact. At least that, you know, Hmm. Um, let's take responsibility. And then the other pattern I noticed was often it was people who were fairly young in movement themselves or fairly young inside of, you know, whatever their political analysis was. You know, I'm like, I can kind of remember before you thought that, you know, I can remember when you might have made the same mistake. Right. And, you know, my heart just was like, do y'all do y'all remember that like everyone was transphobic last week like mm-hmm. all of y'all were saying this this horrific stuff and like we need to unlearn this like together we need to unlearn it and I think it felt like people were starting to skip the step of actually decolonizing and unlearning um, these oppressive systems and just being like I'll just punish anyone who missteps and that'll be how I do my action and it's almost like that's people's activism now and we're depressed. We're losing leaders left and right um, because people are making mistakes and now there's no room for making mistakes. So it just felt like a total crisis to me that needed, needed a different kind of attention. And because I had been away on sabbatical, I think I was brave enough (laughs) to do it um, in that moment. Okay. Do you have, um, 
We will not cancel us. Do you have the little book by you? So on page yeah. 58, um, what you've been talking about on the previous page is kind of the harm that is created. Uh-huh. Um, and I feel like this page is such an acute analysis of, of what cancel culture, and I mean all around, right, on across the spectrum, what it yeah. says about our culture, mm. which is kind of the opposite of, I mean, honoring emergence, right? Mm-hmm. So would you just read that, you know, but one layer under yeah. that, what I hear is... We cannot change. We do not believe we can create compelling pathways from being harm doers to being healed and to growing. We do not believe we can hold the complexity of a gray situation. We do not believe in our own complexity. We do not believe we can navigate conflict and struggle in principled ways. We can only handle binary thinking, good, bad, innocent, guilty, angel, abuser, black, white, etc., etc. Cancer attacks one part of the body at a time. I've seen it. Oh, it's in the throat. Now it's in the lungs. Now it's in the bones. When we engage in knee-jerk call-outs as a conflict resolution device or issue instant consequences with no process, we become a cancer unto ourselves, unto movements and communities. We become the toxicity we long to heal. We become a tool of harm when we were trying to be, and I think meant to be, a balm. Oh, unthinkable thoughts. Now that I have thought you, it becomes clear to me that all of you are rooted in a singular longing. I want us to live. I want us to want to live in this world, in this time, together. What's it like to read that back to yourself? You know, <laughs> I mean, I deeply believe it. Yeah. Um, like, I really want us to live. And I also, I feel less lonely now. When I was writing this, I felt very alone. <laughs> you know, like mm-hmm. I was just like, um, I'm scared for us and for movement spaces. Like I want us to hold each other as so precious. And when I was writing it, that was in me, drumming through me, you know, such a loud longing. But I feel so much less alone now than I did when this came out. Because um, it came out and I've had so many people like, Oh, yeah. <laughs> you know, just like, yes, now I see what you mean. Mm-hmm. Um, a lot of people are, have been called out in the time since this book came out who reached out to me and been like, I didn't know <laughs> until yeah. it happened to me. Um, so, yeah, that's that's the main thing that strikes me now is I feel like a lot a lot more people are like, oh, it's it's part of the political toxicity of the moment yeah. that we've done all. Yeah tricked into participating in it's also part of our distressed nervous systems right exactly we've had bad impulse control for kind of understandable reasons but then but then the internet was just a terrible platform for letting that loose yeah um you know again kind of circling back it is a time of unstoppable change and change is so unsettling and different kinds of people are on the losing end of this change or fear that they are and fear has right fear is also fear fear is the greatest 
example of the power of imagination because even a perceived threat right lands right. with the it's power mostly, of threat mostly and it's imagined <laughs> so i appreciate um a piece that you wrote um I think this is on your blog, A Word for White People in Two Parts. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. This, I appreciate this sentence so much, um, which is just humanizing this. Supremacy is our ongoing pandemic. It partners with every other sickness to tear us from life or from lives worth living. I mean, to me, that kind of, you're saying, let's move towards lives worth living. Lives worth I living. really love that. At the, mm-hmm. at the beginning of that blog post, you put a word for white people in two parts. Part one, what a time to be alive, which is true <laughs> and which is another way to frame yes. it, right? And I feel like we should almost put that sentence at the beginning of so many of our conversations, right? What a Seriously. time to be alive that we are in this total paradigm shift, right? And exactly. that we are, we are tasked with standing before these existential, potentially transformative junctures for our species. Exactly. I mean, this is to me the most exciting thing right now, right? It's like we are aware if we wake up, we are in a place where we can create so much history and so much change. Everything is falling apart, but also new things are possible. And Octavia said that there's nothing new under the sun, but there are new suns. We're in a time <laughs> okay. of new suns. Right, right. We're in a time of new suns. Like we have no idea what we could be, but everything that we have been is falling apart. Mm-hmm. So it's time to change, and we can be mindful about that. That's exciting. Yeah. Mm-hmm. It's buckle your seatbelt exciting, right? Yeah. <laughs> it's like this is we are the action heroes. You know, I always say that for organizers, but I'm like, really, to be a human, once you wake up and recognize, like, oh, I can shape everything. I don't have to be a victim of someone else's vision for my subjugation. I actually get to be a powerhouse in the story of my own life and my people's lives. Oh, That's a different invitation. I'd much rather live in that scenario. And so I do. (laughs) I'm Krista Tippett, and this is On Being. Today with emergent strategist Adrienne Marie Brown. I've seen you um, talk about unthinkable thoughts and favorite questions, right? And and it's coming out of presence, right? Not just Mm -hmm. to to what's going on inside your head, but to what you see happening around you, what you're part of, and also always other teachers. I'm curious, like, you know, sometimes I ask people at the end of an interview about what is making you despair and... And what is giving you hope right now today? And I kind of feel like for you, the question is, what is your unthinkable thought? And what is your favorite <laughs> generative question today? <laughs> mm-hmm. um, well, I my unthinkable thought lately has been, will I be okay if humans don't continue? Mm. For such a long time, I've been really driven by the idea that We have to continue. Like, we simply must. We're so miraculous and incredible. (laughs) Um, But lately, yeah, my unthinkable thought has been like, and, you know, but we might not. So far, we're not making the kind of decisions that would lead to continuation. And what does that mean? And how do I still live a really meaningful life? Hmm. And, you know, fight till the end, because I do feel like that 
you know, I, I'm like, it is miraculous enough that I want to give it my whole life effort, but also can I also be at peace with what is, which might be that we're not, that we're not willing to change. Yeah. yeah. So that's the unthinkable thought. And it's unthinkable because it's so, it really brings up so much grief for me. You yeah. know, like I really love life. Hmm. Um, and then the question, which is actually from one of my teachers, Grace Lee Boggs, that she would always ask when we showed up to sit down and talk with her is what time is it on the clock of the world? And I like this question. It always makes me kind of deconstruct time <laughs> when I, mm. when I, you know, I'm like, oh, we're in these like looping patterns actually. And we're in a pattern that feels familiar in these ways and new in these other ways. Mm. Um, so like we're in this interesting moment in black movement where we came through this first massive wave of, of Black Lives Matter and lots of black organizing happening. And there's a moment right now that's really tense and intense. And it feels like, you know, a lot of internal tension coming out into the light. But for me, this is also a moment of deep learning. And what we've never had before are the tools of communication mm -hmm. and mediation and there's just so many people who are calling each other and being like, I don't want to see us struggle in this way. You so know? the tension feels like a time loop. The tension feels it's not super new. time loop. It's super familiar. Every, yeah. every time any movement, you know, so it's like not just true for black movement, but like any movement that starts to get national acclaim and attention, yeah. you know, there's going to then yeah, be that backlash yeah. that happens within of like, well, who are you to, mm -hmm. <laughs> you know, who and are you? And also the growing right? pains, right, within the human drama, right? The, the growing pains totally. of something that grows. So, so that's the yeah. that's the loop, right? Mm -hmm. But then the different tools that we have this time around, first of all, is so many more people are paying attention to black movement, period. Yeah. Right? Yeah. And I think the the vast majority of them are not getting caught up in that sort of movement internal stuff. I yeah. think the vast majority are just like okay, Black Lives Matter. <laughs> you know, like yeah. so I need to orient around that and I think there's so much beautiful work coming out of the movement for black lives and Southerners on new ground and the catalyst project and surge for white folks and allies. And mm. it's just a different time of talking about racial justice and thinking about racial justice that is full of complexity. There's so many people asking the questions of what does blackness even mean? Like, yeah. can we yeah. interrogate this in a new way? And how do we keep it intersectional? How do we bring in all aspects of ourselves? So I'm finding it a very exciting time, <laughs> right? Mm -hmm. But it's also a fraught time. And we're able to look at it historically more. You know, when I talked, uh, I got to be in a conversation with Angela Davis and, you know, she was like, yeah, like we, we, we dealt with a lot of the same stuff, right? But now y'all know how to take care of each other and yeah. take care of e yourselves. And there's just more tools. Yeah. Right. You, you mentioned Grace Lee Boggs, and I'm yeah. so glad that I sat with her in Detroit um, yes. in her last years and also just sat with that community around her. Yeah. And you quote her on this matter of transformative justice and transformation, yes. right? How, what is it that she says? We, we must transform ourselves to transform the world. Ugh. I feel like that is something that this generation in time 
you know, and your generation and the ones coming after of no, and that is new. Maybe that's kind of what Angela Davis was talking about to you. Yeah, like I, I feel like there is this sense of it's not either or, right? It's just that you are a personal front line. Mm-hmm. What's happening in your life and in the relationships you have with your family and how you treat people when you're upset with them. You know, I always ask people that when I when I talk about transformative justice, like, are you punishing anyone right now? Hmm. And could that punishment be shifted into a boundary or a request? Is there a courageous conversation that needs to be had? How do you personally begin to practice whatever is in alignment with your largest vision? Abolition is something we practice every day in our lives, right? Liberation, emergent strategy, all of these are things to practice every day. And I guess maybe to bring it back to the first question of spiritual practice, right? To me, that's the ultimate spiritual practice as well. It's not about the bombastic meditation retreat. It's about, can you sit every day? Can you bring mindfulness into every activity? Which also brings us back to fractals. Yes. (laughs) Isn't it beautiful? (laughs) Isn't it absolutely beautiful? Yeah, I mean, you're really... I keep using this language of how do we really internalize in our bodies that this is what it's about, that what you do, what you practice in your everyday is a pattern that is part of that larger pattern that you want to see. That's right. I mean, and there's so much awakening. So I always tell people that you're always practicing things. Hmm. So it's not like you go from not practicing to practicing, but it's, are you practicing things on purpose? Hmm. Are you practicing things you would want to practice or are you practicing what someone else has told you (laughs) um, is the right way to do stuff? And once you start practicing on purpose, then you can actually practice liberation and justice and freedom. And yeah, then it, then I think, you know, you begin to have this contentment that comes from practice, you know, like Mm -hmm. I, I know that I won't see total liberation in my lifetime but I also feel very satisfied with how I'm practicing liberation every single day and in every relationship. And moving towards life. And moving towards life, yeah. (laughs) Life moves towards life, you know, that's Hmm. the trick. Adrienne Marie Brown's influential books include Emergent Strategy, We Will Not Cancel Us, Pleasure Activism, and Octavia's Brood. Also, a workbook for facilitation and mediation, Holding Change. She co-hosts several podcasts and is the writer-in-residence at the Emergent Strategy Ideation Institute, which she founded. Visit that at esii.org. On Being Project is Chris Hegel, Lauren Drummerhausen, Aaron Colasacco, Eddie Gonzalez, Lillian Vo, Lucas Johnson, Suzette Burley, Zach Rose, Colleen Check, Julie Seipel, Gretchen Honnold, Jale Akavan, Padre Gautuma, Gautam Shrikishan, April Adamson, Ashley Herr, Matt Martinez, Amy Chatelaine, Cameron Musar, Romy Neme, 
and Kayla Edwards. The On Being Project is located on Dakota land. Our lovely theme music is provided and composed by Zoe Keating. And the last voice that you hear singing at the end of our show is Cameron Kinghorn. On Being is an independent, nonprofit production of the On Being Project. It is distributed to public radio stations by WNYC Studios. I created this show at American Public Media. Our funding partners include the Fetzer Institute, helping to build the spiritual foundation for a loving world. Find them at Fetzer.org. Calliopeia Foundation, dedicated to reconnecting ecology, culture, and spirituality. Supporting organizations and initiatives that uphold a sacred relationship with life on Earth. Learn more at Calliopeia.org. The Osprey Foundation, a catalyst for empowered, healthy, and fulfilled lives. And the Lilly Endowment, an Indianapolis-based private family foundation dedicated to its founders' interests in religion, community development, and education. On Being is produced by On Being Studios in Minneapolis, Minnesota.